You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. Well, 2021 was without doubt a strong year for movie releases, both globally and at home. And over the next hour, we look back at my interviews with people like Oscar winner Jeremy Irons and the creator of Hamilton, Lynn manuel Miranda. Let's start closer to home, though. Ruth Negan grew up in Limerick, but her acting career has brought her international acclaim. She was Oscar-nominated for her role in the 2016 film Loving, and earlier this month she was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress for her performance in Rebecca Hall's Passing. There is, as they say, Oscar buzz around Ruth for that role too. In the film, she plays Claire Kendry, a light-skinned biracial woman who is passing as white and married to a highly bigoted man. Ruth spoke to Arena in October, just as Passing was released in cinemas, and she discussed Nella Larson's original novel that the film is based on. I read the novel, yeah, Nella Larson's um, novella. It's very mm. short. Um, it was first published in 1929, um, and I was just struck by the modernity of it. Um, I was very interested in how it explores identity and the nature of uh, female friendship, and um, I, when Rebecca told me she was wanting to adapt it, and I was thrilled, and mm. I jumped to the chance. She came to you. Um, there are two women really at the at the heart of mm-hmm. the story: Claire Candry, the character you play, mm. and the other character, Irene, played by Tessa Thompson. Mm. When she came to you first, when Rebecca came to you first, was it Irene that she was actually talking to you about? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, Irene is um, definitely the more repressed of the two women. Um, she is um, a pillar in her community, in the black community, and she's a wife and mother, and um, that very that very much forms the basis of her identity. Um, and I think she um, saw me as Mildred Loving, and um, mm. you know they have kind of that's uh, a similar sort of energy, but actually they're actually quite different. Um, but I was very drawn to. Claire's magnetism and um, her audacity, really. Um, She's capricious, she's uh, charismatic and uh, she's also quite irritating. (laughs) Um, And I loved that Nella Larson reserved judgment on her. Right. Um, And I just was, basically my curiosity got the better of me and I wanted to connect with this woman and see how I would play her Mm. and how she would change me. (laughs) Yeah, so both things were involved. Let's have a listen to to a clip. This is from quite early on in the film, actually. Irene, played by Tessa Thompson, uh, she sees this woman staring across at her and is wondering, why is she staring at me Mm -hmm. and why is she looking at me? And then you, as Claire, come over and you start up a conversation. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. I'm afraid you're mistaken. No, of course I know you, Rini. You look just the same. Tell me, do they still call you Rini? Yes, no one's called me that for a long time. Don't you know me? Not really, Rini. I'm afraid I can't seem to place. <laughs> Claire? Mm-hmm. That's right. Not Claire Kendry. Mm-hmm. Now don't run away. You simply must stay and talk. Fancy meeting you here. It's simply too lucky. It's awfully surprising, yes. Hmm. 
I'd never have known you if you hadn't laughed. You've changed so. Well, it's been 12 years at least. You know, I almost dropped by your father's house not so long ago. I've thought of you so often. You have? Of course. You know, since I've been here, I've hoped I might run into someone. Preferably you, though. Well, now you're here. I'll wager you haven't given me a thought. And that's Ruth Nega as the character Claire and Tessa Thompson playing Rini or Irene in a clip there from the film Passing and Ruth Nega with me in studio on Arena this evening. That laugh is what uh, how Rini recognises her again, Ruth, even in the midst of that clip. She's saying the capricious nature comes across there. But this idea that she's passing, the title of the film, mm. that she's passing as a white woman. Mm. Just explain a little bit around that and how prevalent it was, particularly in, in, when, when the novel, uh, novella was written. So, um, passing is um, a theme that is very common in America, but um, not talked about. There's a lot of silence around it, a conspiracy of silence, if you will, um, I think because it's seen as taboo. But it was something that, uh, I suppose, many ways of privilege that was afforded to light-skinned African-Americans, where they could assimilate into the white community and leave their blackness behind um, and people did that for various reasons um, economic necessity opportunity really access to what they were denied as black people and often that was a lot of people saw that as a way out if you will um, slavery mm. um, the deconstruction of the reconstruction the black codes, Jim Crow and it happened a lot, but of course, because it was a secret, um, it became taboo and not talked about. So often people would disappear from their communities. And um, with the aid of the black community, who kept the secret? And so there's a psychological burden on both the community and the person yeah. passing. Um, and a lot of people never returned to their communities. There was a severance of sorts. Um, and this is a an exploration of that and how that psychologically leaves a human being when they have to deny such a crucial part of their identity. Yeah, and you, you said when you were talking about uh, Nella Larson and the novella that she reserves judgment. She doesn't make any judgment no. on any of the characters. And no. there are lots of the characters you could get annoyed at for, for many reasons. Mm. Um, uh, yet you, when you were talking about Claire, the character, you said she's irritating as well as all the great things that she is. Uh, what's that balance between, you know, knowing that she's irritating as the person playing her and still having to reserve judgment as the, novel, the novelist does? What, as play, playing her? Yeah. Well, you know, um, really the onus is on the collective, the ensemble, you know. I mean, I'm relying on the other actors and and um, their great talents to sort of construct that for me, you know. It's through eyes, their eyes, really Irene's eyes that you see Claire and she, she is unreliable. Um, so you don't know if you're getting, you know, the real Claire often, mm. you know. Um, so, you know, her charisma is really um, dependent on the other characters um, and um, her, I suppose... Her power is having power over others, and um, there's a performative quality to that. But really, she is, um, as much as she's the one passing, really it's Irene that is mm. wearing the many masks and passing as various things, you know, and Claire's entry into her world is sort of a catalyst 
um, for Irene as she realises that she's not really living a true authentic mm-hmm. life as herself. She's all of these other things. She finds her self-esteem in her goodness. And I mm-hmm. think that's a very precarious place to put your um, your value as a human yeah. being. Um you mentioned you mentioned Mildred loving the character for which you were Oscar nominated. Mm-hmm. I know I spoke to you around the time of that mm-hmm. of that film. You weren't Oscar nominated at that yeah. time. That I presume has changed, or has it? What way does it change? Not necessarily in the way you're going to play anything, but in career terms, what does it mean? <laughs> I really, I really don't know how to answer that question because, you know, when offers come in, I, I don't, I don't know how much that's motivated by mm. the performances I've done or, you know, the Oscar nomination. I'm sure it helps, you know, and like, I don't, I don't know, and I suppose you know you're value goes up as an actor. I don't really know. I don't really know anything about those things. But you, you, I think you're now a member of the Academy, so will you yeah. be involved in the voting for the Oscars? Yeah, and and yeah. what kind of ideas will you bring to that process? You know there's been lots of talk about you know, the lack of diversity in recent mm-hmm. times. What, what are you hoping to bring to that process? Me, myself and yeah. I. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing is, is that I, 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 I don't really know what goes on in the corridors of power, you know, just because people like me are being talked about doesn't mean that we're doing the one, we're doing the talking you know Mm. um it's just it's about opportunity and access you know it's about um people who have green light things i mean you know we need to have diverse people in positions of power Mm. i mean it's kind of that simple yeah, and I suppose you're bringing a certain life experience to it as well. You know, given your background, you've spoken about this before, your Irish-Ethiopian background and, gr- and growing up in, in Limerick. Do you think that feeds into even the choices you make as, a, as an actor? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, acting is a deeply personal thing and you bring your own experiences. That What's hard is to sort of um, separate out all those different things and mm. how they contribute. Um, it's not something I think about consciously but of course I carry myself everywhere with me I want to give you a little bit of a trip down memory lane have a listen to this hey Rosie I'm so sorry I'm late have you been waiting long you're grand I'm only off the bus there now I was halfway out to the airport I told you I was getting the bus sorry relax I'm here now be smiling now. <laughs> is this all you have yeah Travelling light, I am. But you are staying? Yeah. All I really had was a telly. Let me flat my keeper. Try have a telly. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, you can come around and watch it if you want. Maybe I will. Got all the channels and everything. <laughs> so was your man expecting you today? Today or tomorrow. Would you be upset if you didn't turn up? Why? You thinking of kidnapping me? Yeah, maybe I am. Making me walk the plank? Yeah, I might have to tie you up first. I'll have to let you first. We go for a drink? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Where do you want to go? You got any beers back at yours? Yeah, I've got beer, vodka, whatever you want. I've got a full bar license. Yeah? Go get me drunk, so. What? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> There you go, Rosie and uh, Darren, of course, yourself, Ruth Nega and Robert Sheehan as Darren. And season two, I think that was, of of, uh, of Love, Hate. Yeah. That's nearly 10 years ago now. I think and, it is 10 years, yeah. yeah. A, a lot of water, obviously, has gone under the bridge since mm-hmm. then. But that, had you a sense during that series, Ruth, of just, because obviously it was huge in mm. terms of this country. Had it, it was, the entire season, all seasons were repeated recently on, mm. on RTE television. Had you an idea at the time of how, what kind of 
impact it was going to have. Yeah. So, yeah, immediately from Stuart Caron's writing. It was extraordinary and unique and original and genuine. And um, like, that. I mean, you know, when you've got writing like that, that's deceptively simple. It's really easy to just, you know, do. And then, of course, Robbie Sheehan, you know, it's, it's just it's, it was a lovely dance we did, you know, and it's, you know, it takes two to generate chemistry. And that's what I love about my job, you know, it's like there's a it's it's acting is an ensemble thing, you know, and that means everybody like the writer, the actors, the crew, mm. cast and everything. And I think everyone knew how special it was. And we all we all had a ball. Yeah, and I suppose you you carry those experiences and you're looking for the same thing then. Yeah, most definitely, yeah. That's and what you look for is the people. Uh, just to go back then, Ruth Nega, to, to passing and this working with Rebecca Hall. Mm. Rebecca Hall, who people went up, the, the daughter of Peter Hall, very famous mm. theatre director, and she really, as an actress, many people will know her up mm. to this point, you know. When when she said she wanted to direct this, mm. wh- what was it about what she was saying about the script and about the adaptation, which she did, mm. that, that made you want to be part of it? Because it was a pretty immediate yes, I think. Oh, yeah. On your part. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I've been a very big fan of Rebecca's for a very long time. And, you know, she um, blends a deep intelligence with deep sensitivity and... Um, all those qualities, you know, and her being an actress, I love working mm. with other actors. And I think there's um, a shorthand that we develop and a sort of an eschewing of unnecessary politeness. And, you know, and I think, you know, she understands what actors really love is when you're trusted. It's a real gift to be trusted. And I think, you know, you repay that gift in kind. Ruth Negger there speaking about her work on Rebecca Hall's film Passing. Well, Lin-Manuel Miranda is by now a giant of musical theatre. Hamilton has conquered the globe and his first stage show, In the Heights, was made into a successful feature film that was released earlier this year. And in November, Lin-Manuel's directorial debut hit the screens. Tick, Tick, Boom stars Andrew Garfield as Jonathan Larson, the real-life writer and composer behind the monster stage hit Rent, a show which revolutionised musicals. Jonathan Larson died suddenly on the night of the first preview of Rent due to an undiagnosed cardiac condition. And for Lin-Manuel Miranda, Larson's legacy and work sparked a dream that has sustained him to this day. When I spoke to Lin-Manuel earlier this month, I began by asking him about the impact of going to see Rent on Broadway on his 17th birthday. Oh, uh, it was it was seismic. It was seismic for me. I was in the last row of the Nederlander Theater with my high school sweetheart, Meredith Somerville, who got me the tickets for my birthday. And it was the original cast. It was the first truly contemporary musical I'd ever seen. I know Chorus Line was contemporary when it came out, but that's 20 years prior. Uh, West Side Story, 20 years before that. Um, it took place in my hometown, just, a, you know, a few hundred blocks downtown from where I lived. Um, It was the most diverse cast I'd ever seen on Broadway. It actually looked like the real New York I lived in, not the white New York of a Woody Allen movie or most musicals. Um, And it was the most contemporary sounding thing I'd ever heard. These are real pop songs, but they're telling a story. Um, So in, in many ways, it was the show that gave me permission to write musicals um, because it was not some 
show that took place in some other time in some other land. And I loved musicals like Camelot and Les Miserables and Phantom, but it was the first one that felt like it took place here and now. And that changed everything. For me. Yeah, and of course, the great tragedy was, as we know, Jonathan Larson never got to see the success that that musical was. And that is at the heart of Tick, Tick, Boom. He was writing Tick, Tick, Boom and the story of this, of himself struggling as he was writing Rent. The two were happening concurrently. Yeah, and, and, and that also gives us permission for a delicious moment in the movie of Tick, Tick, Boom, where you see him playing with the chords for one song, Glory, uh, mm-hmm. as he's trying to come up with this song, and then he gets interrupted uh, by his girlfriend uh, on the phone. Um, but yeah, I mean, in many ways, Tick, Tick, Boom is his artistic way of processing the loss of his 20s. He spent his 20s writing a musical called Superbia that no one wanted to produce. Um, And they said it's too expensive for Off-Broadway, it's too weird for On-Broadway. So what about Off-Broadway? It's too expensive for Off. You you gotta cast us thousands with special effects. Uh, 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 Charlie, tell them I'll be on in a sec. Listen, sweetie, Rosa. I got a. I'm sorry, Rosa. Congratulations on a terrific presentation. Rosa, Rosa, hold on. So, okay. So, what am I supposed to do now? You start writing the next one. And after you finish that one, you start on the next. And on and on. And that's what it is to be a writer, honey. You just keep throwing them against the wall. And And so he writes this show called Tick, Tick, Boom. It's semi-autobiographical. And he was like, you can't tell me me in a rock band is too expensive to produce. (laughs) Um, and so, uh, but, but in many ways, it's, it's processing the loss of that time and, and clearing the decks for what would become Rent. Uh, and indeed, when, when Jonathan Larson himself did the show uh, prior to Rent, obviously, it was just a one-man show, him and a band. But then it grew slightly in David Auburn's original stage production. Uh, this was about five years after Jonathan Larson's death. And you saw that three times, I believe. I did. I was my senior year of university. Um, The first time I saw it, it was the month after the terrorist attacks of September 11th. It was my first time downtown since those attacks uh, at 14th Street at the Jane Street Theater. And again, it hit me like a thunderbolt because now I've gone and done it, right? Like now I'm a theater major. (laughs) I've followed Jonathan Larson's advice from seeing Rent at age 17. And here is this show that says, um, you know, the clock is always ticking. And are you okay with making art if the world doesn't notice? Um, And your friends are going to grow up and get real jobs. Um, Even your really talented friends that should be making movies uh, and writing songs, they're going to grow up and you're going to be the only one banging your head against the childhood dream. Um, Are you okay with that? And it clarified my resolve in that respect. Yeah, because all of this is pre-Hamilton. And I mean, when when we think of what Hamilton... Pre-living in New York as an adult. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know what, the effect that that musical had on your entire career, it must be something similar to what would have happened if Jonathan Larson had got to survive through Rent. It's just, every time you say it, it's just, it is so tragic. But you played Jonathan in in a 2014 stage production then. I mean, who else was going to make this movie? You see it in your senior year, you see Rent, you see Tick, Tick, Boom in your senior year of college. You star as Jonathan Larson in a, in a production in 2014. Who could make the movie if it wasn't you? Well, that's what I said to Julia o when she approached <laughs> me with the, with the film rights. Who but me could make this movie? I felt like I'd been preparing all my life to, to honour Jonathan Larson and, and pay him back for everything he'd given me. 
Uh, but you were a little bit, were you at this stage, you were a little bit over the 30 that you'd need to be to sing 3090 uh, uh, in the way that Andrew Garfield does in the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I and I was I was so lucky that I played I played Jonathan uh, when I was 34 years old. I, it was like, this is the last chance I'm going to get to credibly play it. Um, and so that that performance really came at a at a fulcrum in my life. I my co-stars were Karen Olivo, who was my co-star in my first show in the Heights and Leslie Odom Jr., who would be my future co-star in Hamilton. I was super pregnant with Hamilton at the time. Our, our premiere was a few months away when we did that performance of Tick, Tick, Boom. My wife was super pregnant with our first child. It was just sort of the moment in the roller coaster where you're just waiting <laughs> for things to happen. Uh, and so it was kind of the perfect time uh, in my life for, for that show to come along. Did you, did you give that to Andrew Garfield as a potential kind of subtext as he goes into the big 3090 number in the film? Uh, no, Andrew didn't need my help in that respect. I think he, you know, he he's so rigorous about his research uh, for roles, and all I needed to do was give him the time and the resources uh, to be able to sing in the way that Jonathan sang and play in the way that Jonathan played. Um, and then um, the great joy was the collaboration of constantly asking ourselves, "What would Jonathan Larson do uh, in in any of the given situations that this film presents?" Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton And there's a million things I haven't done But just you wait, just you wait When he was ten, his father split full of it Dead ridden two years when we, when we think of uh, your situation with Hamilton and Jonathan Larson's situation with Rent as described there from the film uh, 39, when, when Andrew Garfield thinks 3090, Larson, Hamilton, ten, two men who both died very young, long before they were done for sure. That must have struck you at some point along the way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a that's a chicken egg scenario. I think that a, a great deal of Hamilton's sense of urgency was something I had gleaned from Jonathan Larson's work and and this notion of getting as much done possible because tomorrow's not promised. Jonathan's work mm. has lessons about that, and Jonathan's life has lessons uh, about that. And um, you know, I think. I think the secret of Hamilton's success, it's not about politics and it's not about government. It's about um, all these characters are wrestling with, if we can hear the ticking clock of mortality and Burr and Hamilton both heard that very loudly, what is our approach? What are we meant to do with the time we have? And that's a question we all ask ourselves. Finally then, obviously the world of music theatre tragically lost Stephen Sondheim, who had had a full life, yes, but still uh, awful to lose him. He was a mentor to Jonathan Larson and a mentor to you. Just tell us about the note that he gave to you uh, on on the voicemail that his character leaves in the film, that, that his character leaves in the film for Jonathan. Yeah, well, listen, um, I, I was very inclusive with Steve on the making of this film, you know, so much depended on on his blessing, um, the homage to Sunday uh, that we do to his work Sunday in the Park with George. Um, and we have a character of Stephen Sondheim on screen. And um, when I finally worked up the courage to show him the film it was pretty late in production. And he wrote me back being like, I think he said, you treated me gently and royally, for which I'm grateful. Um, and I think the voicemail that Steve leaves John 
could be better. Can I re-record it for you? Um, and that was incredibly generous of him. And in the wake of his passing, um, is is even more profound because it's a message of um, you should be proud uh, and keep writing and keep going. Um, and 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 I'm really grateful the movie honors both of his legacies, both his immortal work and his his profound legacy of mentorship to not just me and not just John, but generations of makers. Um, and and I think that's that's the more profound legacy he leaves behind. Lin Manuel Miranda, thank you so much for being with us on Arena this evening. Thank you. Showers in the kitchen, there might be some soap. Dishes in the sink, brush your teeth to poop and cope. Toilets in the closet, you better hope there's a light bulb in there. Not today! Revolving door roommates, prick up your ears. 14 people in just four years. Ed and Max and Jonathan and Carolyn and Carrie. David, Tim, no, Tim was just a guest. Ooh, from I remember Tim. Mary, Margaret, Lisa, David, Susan, Stephen, Joe, and Sam. And Elsa, the bill collector's dream was still is on the lamb. Don't forget the neighbors, Michelle and Gate. Oh, yeah. The family, the family. Andrew Garfield and Company in Tick, Tick, Boom, which is now available on Netflix. You're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena, where we're looking back at the best of our film interviews from 2021. The Irish feature film herself tells the story of Sandra, a Dublin woman fleeing domestic violence with her children. Languishing on the housing list, she has the idea to dig herself out of her situation by building herself her own house. But as always in Ireland, when it comes to housing, nothing is easy and nothing is straightforward. The film was written by actor Claire Dunn, who also takes on the role of Sandra. Herself was directed by Philida Lloyd, whose previous films include Mamma Mia and The Iron Lady. And when I spoke to Philida in September, I asked her how she felt about working on such a comparatively small scale project. Yeah, I mean, it's what I really wanted to do for a long time. It seems I'm trying to go in the opposite direction to most people who are trying to get bigger and bigger budgets. But I wanted to somehow um, bring my work um, in line with the theatre work I was doing. And I felt that somehow I could create that same, um, I don't know, intimate atmosphere on the shoot uh, if, if I work with a lower budget. And obviously that really that kind of suited this this project. Yeah, because it is it's very much a, a chamber piece in comparison to those bigger films that 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 I've already yeah. mentioned. Uh, but you were you working with Claire at the very time in theatre when the the script arrived to you, or in, in fact, I think you went seeking it. Um, yeah, I would had been working with Claire for a couple of years. Um, we worked on a a big um, project. Uh, we were with an all female Shakespeare company. Um, performing Shakespeare plays set in, a, the, the concept was they were set in a women's prison. And so Claire and I were um, going in and out of prison, actually with Harriet Walter as well, who stars in the film. And we were very preoccupied by the number of women we met who had had childhoods um, of domestic violence and how this kind of dominated the landscape in prison and, and that somehow led to so many women being in there. And so we were really interested in um, hearing their stories and getting their voices to be heard. And it was at that time that Claire um, had a friend become homeless in Dublin and was just so kind of shocked and outraged by it that she um, decided to sit down and write this story. Yeah, and the, the other aspect of this is, before we get on to Claire as a writer, 
What about from that project that you're describing, it's a very particular type of actor that you would need to take on a project like that and to become involved in a project like that. Was there something about Claire the actor that really struck you when you first met her? I mean, there was something about when I very first met her in 2012 and she came in to audition for a role in Julius Caesar, I was kind of blown away by how she closed the gap between herself and, in that case, you know, really quite um, hard to wrestle with text. But when she spoke it, it was as if she was literally making it up as she went along. And I think that, um, I mean, one of the things that, that my audiences might be interested in knowing is that she hadn't originally um, been sure that she would play Sandra in the film. She had thought, well, she'd been showing it to actresses who she thought had slightly more status than she did. She was struggling at that time to get good work on screen and thought that maybe to get the film made, you know, might need a name in the lead role. And in many ways, that's what made me overcome my sort of hesitancy about whether I was the right person to direct an Irish movie. I just thought, with Claire's help and others, I will listen and look at Dublin hard enough to really be able to make this all credible. And uh, but I was kind of more, uh, you know, apart from loving the screenplay and wanting to do a low budget film, I was just absolutely determined that Claire would play the lead in this. How big a battle was it, you know, because it's, it, let's face it, that is an act of great uh, modesty in some ways to write a screenplay and say, look, nah, that's not the right one for me. I, for my film to be made, I need to have, we need to have a big name on board. That shows, again, shows a certain type of actor. It showed that it wasn't a vanity project for her. She wasn't trying to write herself, you know, an Oscar-winning movie. She was just trying to get the, the the story and the subject out there. And we were lucky that we met two very important people on this, um, Sharon Horgan, Ed Guiney and Rory Gilmartin of Element. And both, you know, what you need when you're 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 an actor writer and a director it are great producers to help make it happen and though they knew it wouldn't make it easier to raise the money for the film to not be able to bring on board you know a named actor they completely supported us the whole way you know we, we were all very very motivated to bringing Claire's talent you know both her writing talent but her acting talent as well to the public well, let's have a listen to Claire then to to get a sense of the thing that attracted you to the to the actor and and to to, to Claire Dunn actually playing the role in the screenplay that she had written herself. But here is Sandra Claire Dunn playing the part, and she's in the housing office trying to convince a worker in the council offices to give her some of their land uh, to help her out of this difficulty she has finding a house. And this is what she says: "I want to build a house." Um. These are some of the vacant sites that you have going spare and the addresses are on the back. And this is how much it would cost me for the materials and a plumber and an electrician is 35,000 euro. You see, I figured out that I cost you 33,000 in rent and welfare in one year alone. Um, and at number 653 on the housing list, sure that's three or four years keeping us in hotels, which would cost you 120,000, maybe even more. But if you lend me the money and let me use a site, then I could have that built by Christmas 
and be paying you rent for the house. Do you see what I mean? You'd even be making a profit. I'm really sorry. I can't help you with this. Claire Dunn there in herself. Now, between the accents and the glamour, House of Gucci was one of the most talked about films of the autumn. Part-time Cork resident Jeremy Irons played the role of Rodolfo Gucci in the Ridley Scott film. And when I spoke to Jeremy Irons in November, I began by asking him about Rodolfo Gucci, a fading former star of the silver screen and one of the children of Gucci o Gucci, who founded the famous company. Well, he was he was a, a film actor as a young man. Um, uh, not a very good film actor. I watched some extracts from some of his films. He was married to a German actress who was a lot better than as an actress than he was as an actor. Um, and I think partially because of his awareness that he wasn't the world's greatest actor and because he controlled 50% of the Gucci empire, he didn't need to work. Um, I think he loved the glamour and probably continued living it through his wife. But um, when she died, which is before our story starts, I think a lot of the brightness and the glamour left mm. his life. He was still 50% uh, running Gucci and left with a son. And I think his son was, his son who continued living with him for longer than most sons would continue living with their family. Uh, he hung on to that because it yeah. was a connection to his to his past, you know, and uh, because he was Italian and uh, very conservative, he 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 wanted to try to continue controlling his son. Uh, uh, and that yeah, split up as it tends to do. Yeah, and 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 that's kind of where we meet them. That they're initially the yeah. relationship is okay, but then it's it's very um, tattered, really, when Patrizia comes on the scene, the Lady Gaga character. But in yeah. terms of of, of uh, Rodolfo's role in the running of Gucci, there really are at the point we meet them in in the family yourself as Rodolfo and Al Pacino, as uh, Aldo, the brother. They have a very different sense of style. They have a very different sense of propriety. <laughs> Real contrast yeah. here. Yeah, well, of course, brothers are often very different, aren't they? Um, Aldo is attracted to living in New York and uh, with all the sort of forward-looking um, uh, glamour and buzz of New York. Uh, Rodolfo, my character, remains living in Milan and... Um, sort of lives in the past, lives in the shadows, bit of a hermit, uh, and continues the company ticking over. Aldo has great plans, which Rodolfo doesn't share. And so even between them, um, mm. there's, a, there's a split right at the beginning. But I wonder, yeah, and, and I wonder to what extent, though, because um, obviously you had worked with Al Pacino before in another kind of chalk and cheese type of scenario on screen with uh, in The Merchant of Venice, 2004 uh, film of The Merchant of Venice, you as Antonio mm. and Al Pacino as, as Shylock. I wondered, mm. was there a, a, a kind of a joy or how did you play this idea that you had quite definitely the more elegant costumes, the more elegant style to portray here, whereas Al was left with this um, quite brash style to, to put on screen. Did you have fun with that together? We did. We did. I mean, I, I, I love working with Al. We're very comfortable uh, together. 
you know, creating a scene. And, um, and he'd made his choice, I'd made mine. Um, and I think it was, it was good that you saw a different sense of style. We're physically quite different. Um, mm. And I think they were both, they were mentally very different. Um, so, uh, it, it, you know, you, what, what, the last thing you want is an actress to find someone else playing exactly what you're playing dressed exactly as you're dressed. Uh, yeah. So it was quite a relief that we each had our, we came from our own yeah. uh, different corner. And of course you, you had worked with Ridley Scott previously as well in Kingdom of Heaven in around the same time it must have been as that that uh, production of Merchant or that film version of Merchant of Venice. I suppose it wasn't, yeah. I, 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 I'm always very bad at remembering when things were. Mm. Uh, but I suppose it must have been about the same time, yeah. And did did does that experience you know reconnecting with a director in that way that must uh, make lead for oh, a, a kind it's of it's wonderful yeah it's wonderful um, you know it was twenty years ago Ridley uh, Ridley has mellowed a bit in that time and he's also made some wonderful films so he's even more experienced and uh, it's lovely you know when a director asks you back. Uh, it, it's always great because you think you think oh well you can't have been that disappointed with what I did before <laughs> uh, so so you start off um, ahead of the game really and, and, and it, uh, he, I, I thought what was great was that I mean Kingdom of Heaven was a very epic story um, but this this story is is also epic in its sort of family tragedy uh, where Shakespearean Greek even mm. uh, someone suggested earlier that it might make quite a good opera and i think it would yeah for sure and and the costumes as we saw on screen would be perfect for opera as well and speaking yeah. of speaking of costumes was it last night was the big premiere i noticed that uh, certainly gaga was getting a lot of the pictures in terms of her glamour there but you had a beautifully understated quality dapper i would has it ha, uh, would have to attest did you have Gucci in mind when choosing your outfit for that, or how did that work, Jeremy? No, I'm afraid I just wore my favourite clothes. Um, I thought <laughs> House of Irons. The evening, so I made sure I was going to be warm enough. And um, just wear, what wore would I wear? Rather unimaginative, maybe. A lot of a lot of the cast were in Gucci. I, I actually didn't think of doing that. I'd never worn Gucci. Um, it was a shame because Tom Ford, such a wonderful designer. I don't know why I'm not. <laughs> uh, maybe I have to rethink my entire wardrobe. Yeah, there might be other opportunities for that. I'm wondering to what yeah. extent with Ridley Scott and with the way that the film was approached, it was based obviously on the story that the book by Sarah Gay Forden, House of Gucci, a sensational story story of murder, madness, glamour and greed, all of which are present in there. Did you, did you go towards that book to look back at the life of uh, Rodolfo? Oh yeah, I, was ba I, ba I based all my research on the book. Mm. Um, I, I didn't know the story at all, and and you know the script is based on the book. So the the one thing you can do in your research is to read the book, um, and then uh, go for a bit further afield and find look at some of the research that she used mm. um, to try to f fill out any area you want to. But no, the book was a very important uh, yeah, part of the so whole research process. Uh, and obviously this was shot in and around pandemic, which must have led to all sorts of difficulties on set. But, uh, you know, certainly protocols that had to be followed through. But I'm wondering in terms of Ireland and in terms of home here, the home in, in County Cork, obviously, Kilcoo yeah. Castle. Did you get any chance to spend part of lockdown uh, at home here in Ireland or how did that work? Towards, 
Yeah, towards the end, I did. Um, uh, I, I, I was able to spend quite a bit of time there. It's still relatively easy to get across, even though we've uh, we've walked out of Europe, and um, uh, the, you know we use the protocols. Although I live miles away from from other habitation, um, we're quite careful, and I'm very impressed by how how Ireland's been dealing with. Uh, with lockdown and with the testing and with the masks and pe people seem to be really serious and uh, mm. about the whole process so you, you hopefully get back home soon just as we finish up then jeremy i hope i hope to get back uh, end of november yeah well listen um lovely to speak with you today and don't you worry about house of gucci house of irons looks just fine to me in what you're wearing <laughs> today <laughs> thanks no, lovely to speak with you jeremy good to speak with you bye jeremy irons who spoke to me in november you're listening to Wednesday Night's Arena. Brothers Ron and Russell Mail are better known as the eccentric and truly unclassifiable duo Sparks. And for more than 50 years, they have played a pivotal role in multiple musical movements, from glam rock to new wave to synth pop. Their songs, along with their distinctive stage presence, burst onto the glam rock scene in the early 1970s. And with 25 albums to their name, they have often followed up their biggest moments with radical shifts in style. 2021 was big for Sparks. They released their movie musical Annette, directed by French auteur Leos Carax and starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. The film won Best Director and Best Soundtrack at Cannes this year. But that's not all. The male's career was celebrated in The Sparks Brothers, a feature documentary from director Edgar Wright. And when I spoke to Sparks in July of this year, not long after Cannes, I put it to Russell that 2021 would go down as an exceptional year for the duo. No, it, it is. It, uh, we're thrilled beyond, uh, beyond words that uh, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> and uh, now not only having this amazing documentary from a you know, great director, Edgar Wright, but having a movie musical that we, that we wrote um, that's starring Adam Driver and then Cotillard and it's just... Uh, been the opening film at the Cannes Film Festival. We were there for the last two weeks and uh, not only opening the Cannes Film Festival, but also winning two awards, one for Best Director for Leos Carax, who directed it. And, and then we, as Sparks, winning uh, for the uh, an award for the Best Soundtrack uh, album. So it, it's like kind of a unbelievable period for us right at the moment. Yeah, it, it certainly is that. Although you've had lots of unbelievable periods um, during your uh, five decades, really, uh, in performance, in the world of performance. But Ron, when, when I'm sure lots of people had come to you over the years wanting to make a documentary about Sparks and trying to understand um, the process that is behind your artistic work. What was it that made you trust, allowed you to trust Edgar Wright? Well, one of of the things is just that we we are really passionate about his films we other people have come to us with the idea of doing a documentary about sparks and we always declined you know partly because we didn't have faith in them as a as a filmmaker and we love edgar wright's films and then also uh edgar kind of came with the thesis the the idea that that he felt that all of sparks periods were were strong, that there wasn't like some golden age in the past and that there were then 17 albums after that were kind of the decline of this uh, creative force. And and so that, you know, obviously that 
that's kind of how that's how we see ourselves whether you know whether whether there's any self-delusion in that or not but we we see ourselves as being creatively doing as strong a work as we've done at any time and so the combination of those two two things is what really convinced us to say yes at this time where we had said no in the past to other people. I, I think for most people, or for a lot of people, particularly in this part of the world, in, in Europe, Kimono My House 1974 and the song This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us will be, if you say Sparks, I think that's what, that's what a lot of people will, will say immediately. When you, when, when you were making that album, you had moved from the US to, to the UK to make that album. Can you remember the kind of artistic mindset that you were in at that time, Russell? Yeah, well, um, you know, we we had uh, moved here, moved to the, to London from L.A. and, you know, getting to fulfill our dream, actually, of becoming a British band. And we had had two albums prior to that time. And then, then fortunately, this one song that, that Ron had written, This Town and Picking Up for Both of Us, became a, a huge, massive hit. Although one of the things, um, rather, I don't want to stick with that period in time, but one thing I do want to say that we hear particularly in that song is the quality of your voice, Russell. And Ron, you getting to write for that voice as you have done, and the quality of the voice is still there in the, in the recent albums as well. Writing for that voice, it, it's, it strikes me that there's a kind of symbiotic quality somehow between the two of you as, as brothers and artists. This ability uh, for Russell to deliver your lyrics and your music, Ron, but also for you to write for that extraordinary, almost operatic voice, it has to be said. That, I mean, that's that's true, because I, I always have faith that whatever I'm going to write is going to be able to be kind of performed in the ideal way, just because Russell is the, is the singer. I mean, it, it isn't even, I'm even past the point, you know, quite a long time ago of, of just thinking is this going to work you know who who is the singer i don't even think in those terms because i just know it's going to always always work and and uh you know russell has the flexibility the kind of stylistic eccentricity that fits the eccentricity of the of the music and so you know it, it it's it's something that you know we don't even think about but but is kind of the key thing that there isn't a separation mm. between the songs and the singing that it's kind of all one thing. For sure and, and that's really what comes across in the documentary what Edgar Wright gives to us. Um, the, the, the film itself, the, the film world itself, you started out your father used to bring you to matinees on Saturday afternoons at, and you used to go in late to them sometimes. The film is dedicated to your parents, Ron, and I was really struck by that, and I'm really struck by the brotherly relationship between the two of you. How do you think that early life fed into the facility you have to be chameleon-like in your artistic expression? Well, I, I think that our parents always really encouraged us to do creative things. I mean, neither of our parents were were musical in a traditional sense, but, but they always, uh, whatever we kind of got involved with and when we got involved with music they they encouraged that i mean our our father was was a a graphic design person in a newspaper but also a a painter but he would he would come home with with rock records for some reason that obviously he loved and and we were so we our musical education was from you know him bringing these 78s of of elvis and little 
little Richard. And, and so, you know, just that kind of, uh, of kind of, uh, seeping in of all of this modern pop culture and of, of, of matinee, of uh, movies and of, of popular music, you know, it obviously, uh, had, had an, an, mm-hmm. uh, an effect on us, uh, that would kind of lead to us be, being interested in actually being in a band. And one thing, as, as we finish up, I, I'd like to ask Russell is, it would seem those that the band that you left behind when you started in America, the band that you left behind when you went back from the UK back to America, and several other people who have worked with you throughout the years, and you two brothers, there never seems to have been a crossword between any of you, if we're to judge by Edgar's Edgar Wright's documentary. Never a fight. How have you maintained such good relationships over five decades with so many different people? No, that, that's something that we're really proud of with the documentary that that there, you know, we had to make really tough decisions with some of the band members that we had throughout our career. Um, and, you know, especially the, the, the first band that we had in Los Angeles, where we had to make a decision when Ron and I were offered an opportunity to come to the UK to reform with British musicians. So to, and these people were our friends, but this was kind of our, dream to, to to come to the UK and actually be become a British band. So we had to make really tough decisions along the way. And what we're so, so happy about and so happy that Edgar included in the documentary is that a lot of the band members from the past are interviewed in the documentary. And they, they say that they completely understand why we had to do cert, make certain decisions that we did throughout our career and there's not bitterness um, mm. at all being displayed by them. And they're actually happy that we've gone on to be successful and continued on with our with our vision. And there's one band member in Hampton who says, well, it's, we, we're, we're doing um, art for art's sake and that he understood why we mm. had to make certain decisions that that um, where we changed the band and 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 so he you know and so it, it just was really heartwarming for us to hear from past band members that um, they've kind of although they've been disappointed certainly that they really understood yeah. what the decisions were we made and that they still are really proud to have been in Sparks even for yeah. whatever period it was and however long it was. Well it sure is a delight to watch a documentary where people praise each other rather than tear each other down and tell us all about why they broke up and why they had rows. I'm finishing up with the most recent thing then that I can finish up with is which is something from the soundtrack uh, from Annette featuring both of you performing Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard here as well and Simon Halberg. After the, the disappointment with Jacques Tati the disappointment with Tim Burton, how brilliant was it to finally get a film project out there, Ron? Oh, it was unbelievable because, you know, we have had those kind of setbacks that were incredibly disappointing just because of our passion for for film and, and the marriage of film and music. So to actually have a film not only get made, but be the opening night film at, at the Cannes Film Festival with a great director like Neos Carax, I mean, it, we're, it's, it's just a dream for us. Listen, lovely to have spoken with both of you and have learned so much about you over the two and a half hours of the documentary. Thanks for being with us on the programme this evening. Thank you. Ron and Russell Mail there of Sparks. And let's go out on something from the soundtrack which won them the award at Cannes. Here are Sparks and the cast of Annette with So May We Start. So may we start, may we start, may we start.
Sparks there, ending tonight's arena, which was presented by Sean Rocks and produced by Sinead Egan.